Welcome, everyone. We're glad that you can all join us for this um, workshop series. We're so glad to have uh, Dr. Justin Bailey join us. If you're familiar from the few years back when he uh, was able to preach at our church, I think he's preached at our church a couple times uh, over the years. But uh, we're so glad that we can uh, be able to have this space with him. Uh, he currently is a professor over at Dort uh, Seminary. Is it a seminary? Dort, Dort University. Dort University. And he's a professor of theology there. Um, and we're we're just so glad. I, I know he just came from vacation and he's really full of energy now to, to, to start his time with us. But, you know, uh, Justin and I, we have such an interesting history together. It's almost like a unsaid we, we were both in the same circles of churches in our time in Chicago, yet we really never uh, ran into each other personally until I came out here to San Francisco and then Joey had him uh, to, uh, to come and preach. So it was funny, like we were in the same circles for years, but never, and, and he was the only other Filipino guy I knew. Uh, and we still didn't get to meet each other until we came out to San Francisco. So it's just, it's so great that, you know, he, we're able to connect out here and just glad that he's serving our church in this way. And so um, really excited. He's uh, encouraged you to check out his book, The uh, Reimagining Apologetics. I, I read it this past year and it's just such a formative book for my own life. Um, but we're excited that he can be able to share a little bit more about that uh, through this workshop here. So. Justin, I'm going to hand you the ropes, and um, you can you can take it away. Yeah, thanks so much, Aram. Uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you all. Again, albeit virtually, I'm sure it would have been a lot more fun uh, to come out in person and see you all. But uh, we're all, I guess, used to this uh, by now. Uh, let me go ahead and share my screen so you can see. Um, is that coming through there? Good. Um, so I have um, a good amount of content to share on this topic. This is, this is a research passion, a research interest for me. And so we'll just kind of play it by ear and see how it goes. I will share a little bit of content, then give you an opportunity to ask any questions um, that you might have uh, that comes up. And then depending on how it goes, we'll decide what to do uh, for the next few weeks. I think the next couple are going to be uh, asynchronous, so recorded, and then I'll be again with you in person uh, for the fourth for the fourth week. So let me just do a little bit more uh, in the way of introduction, so you can know who I am. Uh, I live in Sioux Center, Iowa, uh, which is right up in the northwest corner of Iowa, almost in South Dakota, almost in Minnesota, almost in Nebraska, right up there in the corner. And I teach theology at Dort University. I'm entering my fifth year uh, doing that. Uh, and prior to that, I was a full-time pastor, first in Chicago and then in Pasadena, California, uh, for four years. And I still serve a local church here. I preach most Sundays. Uh, married to Melissa. Uh, we've been married for 18 years. And then I have two kids, Ben, who's 12, and Sophia, who is 10. And I guess the impetus for um, my research and for this seminar is a conversation that I had about 15 years ago when I was serving in a church in the Chicago suburbs, ministering to college and young adults. And one student who I called, I'll call David, um, not his real name, but uh, he said this to me. 
He said, when we're in the church and I'm listening to the preaching, it's like you're weaving a spell. And I believe and the world makes sense to me. And then I walk out the door of the church and it's like the spell is broken. And that conversation just clung to me because it was like he was saying, when I'm at church, uh, it, it makes sense. It's full of meaning. I believe. I know who I am. I know who God is. I know what it means for me to be in the world. But then as soon as I leave, God seems distant outside the walls of the church. Um, and I think that it clings to me because it captures so well the way that our faith can feel fragile out in the wider world. When you're in church and you're sort of in this thick community and this thick network of shared meaning, uh, faith can feel robust. It can feel like something to support you. But then oftentimes when we go out of that circle um, and we're out in the wider world, it can feel like the spell that we were under has been broken. Uh, and we're not sure maybe um, how firm our foundation is or how firmly connected we are uh, to God or to other people. So part of the context for this also is that we live in a time during which the number of people who mark none is increasing as rapidly as any religious group. And there are plenty of young people who walk away from their childhood faith in college and beyond, which creates all sorts of crises, both for parents, um, for communities. Uh, how do we keep our young people um, in the faith? How do we keep ourselves in the faith? Um, and it was conversations like the one that I had with David that sent me, as I'd like to say, in search of stronger spells. So if these weaker spells are being broken, what would it mean to weave stronger spells? And what I meant by that is a more integrated, a more holistic way of doing discipleship and a more integrated and holistic way of doing apologetics. And so that sent me back to graduate school, which I had not planned on doing when I finished my MDiv um, over 10 years ago. Uh, I was sure that I was done with school forever. And little did I know that I would, you know, chasing these questions, which ministry gave me, would lead me to get another, another couple degrees uh, and to become a professor. Uh, and I'm still chasing these questions. I'm still trying to figure this out. Um, and so this kind of reflects a little bit of my exploration, I guess. Uh, the metaphor of stronger spells is not original to me. Uh, it actually, you could also say it comes from C.S. Lewis. Um, he writes, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantment, enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us up from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. So what Lewis is saying, and what I'm interested in when I talk about stronger spells, I'm not talking about Harry Potter or anything like that necessarily. Uh, I'm talking about the way that faith has to do more than just satisfy our intellect. It has to also capture our imagination. Because the reality is, is that all of us are in danger of having the right ideas about God in our head, uh, but also having our imaginations taken captive by stories that are not as good or as big or as true as the story of the world that's told to us in the gospel of Jesus. And so as I continued in ministry, and as I went back to school, I became convinced that while I had done an adequate job uh, addressing my congregants and my students intellectually, I hadn't given attention to the question of what it means to disciple and to form the imagination. And so that's the question that I wanna explore, especially in, in this session, maybe even the first two sessions, uh, what does it mean to have a discipled imagination and how would we disciple 
the imagination, right? So we can maybe think of how we disciple the intellect, right? That would be a matter of, of having the right ideas and wrestling with the ideas and, and coming to hold them more firmly. But what does it mean to disciple the imagination? And then in the second half of the seminar, or this, I guess the, the third and the fourth, or maybe the second and the third, depending on how it goes, I want to ask the same question about apologetics, about Christian witness, about the way we think about our own doubts that we have, as well as the way that we maybe commend the faith to others who have doubts or who have objections or have questions. Uh, what would it mean to take the imagination seriously if the imagination matters as much as the intellect? So uh, three questions that I want to try to pursue today. Uh, I think today, we'll see how far we get. Uh, first, uh, what is the imagination? Uh, second, uh, what, why does it matter? What does it matter? Why does the imagination matter? And then how do we take, um, how do we take the imagination seriously in Christian discipleship? So let me start by saying uh, what I don't mean by the imagination. Uh, I don't mean, first of all, false as if the imagination is only concerned with what is imaginary. Like when you say, oh, I thought I heard a noise, but it was only my imagination. So I don't mean imaginary necessarily. I also don't mean childish, uh, like where your kid says, I'm bored. And you say, oh, use your imagination, right? It's something to distract us. And I also don't mean escapist. Like when you go to, well, when you used to go to the movie theater uh, to escape reality for a couple of hours. When I talk about the imagination, what I'm primarily interested in is really one of the best things about being human, which is exploring possibility. So when you hear me say imagination, think possibility. It's the faculty that God has given to us to explore po possibility, what is possible in the world that he's created. So remember Genesis 1, God creates humanity in his image, and that means that we are meant to resemble God. We are meant to represent God and we're meant to relate God, re relate to God as we go out uh, to make something of the world. And there's this sense in Genesis that God has hidden all of these treasures throughout creation, all of these things for us to discover, and we are to go out and play with them and try to take the good start that God has given us and somehow uh, make it even make it even better. Right. So if you read Genesis, you see that in the garden, there's all of these precious stones that are hidden in the ground. And then if you read at the end of the Bible, all of those same precious stones are in the walls of the city. So there has been this progression. Humanity has taken what is only potential hidden in the ground. And now it's been built into the city of God uh, when you get to the book of Revelation. Same precious stones, but in Genesis, they're in the ground. In uh, Revelation, they're in the walls. And there's a sense of uh, as Solomon says in Proverbs 25 too, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but to search things out is the glory of kings. Um, and this is this profound privilege that God gives, gives to us as we go out in the creation mandate, the cultural mandate to unfold the potentialities of creation. We have to ask the question, what if, what if we did this? I wonder if, if, if we found a way to ride those horses or, or, or who figured this one out? What if we roasted some beans and then ground them up and then poured boiling water over them? <laughs> right. What if what if we did that? Um, or, or what if we built something that could make us fly through the air? What would that be like? What if? See, the imagination is this faculty that God has given to us that moves us forward in pursuit of possibility, in obedience to the creation mandate. 
to take the good start that God has given to us and to make it even better. So there's naturally all these different flavors hidden in creation, but we take these flavors and we use a cre- the creativity that God has given to us and learn to cook. And so the thousands of flavors that God has given to us become tens of thousands of flavors as we use our creativity and imagination to take creation and apply creativity to it. So this is the faculty that God has given to us, this, this wondering faculty, uh, this faculty that inquires after possibilities. Now, that's only the first movement in the story, though. The second movement, of course, is the, uh, the fact that humans introduced evil into the story. And so then the problem becomes that we are not just created and creative, but we are also fallen. And so we begin to imagine possibilities that are beyond the limits that God has set for our flourishing. So we want to use our creativity to build the Tower of Babel, or we use our creativity and our imagination to imagine idols or to pursue what the Bible calls vain imaginings. And scripture warns us about this. So if we look at um, some of the places where the imagination shows up in the Bible, most of the time it's pretty negative. Uh, talking about in Genesis chapter six, where every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, or this time when the prophet Jeremiah looks forward to where the, the nations will no longer walk after the imagination of their evil heart. But we have to be clear that when the biblical authors write these things, they're not objecting to the created structure of the imagination, which is a gift from God, but to the sinful directions in which humans take it. They're warning us about imagining and thinking and devising and living without God. So it's autonomy that's in view here, not just imagining. Um, So in scripture, vain imagination results in real world wickedness. And so the answer then is not to do away with imagining uh, as if it were somehow less fallen than the intellect um, or more fallen than the intellect, but to offer it to the Lord uh, with the rest of our lives. So let me say a little bit more about uh, what, how we might define the experience of imagining. Uh, three aspects to the imagination as we explore possibility. So first, there is an aspect of seeing. Uh, second, there is an aspect of sensing. And third, there is an aspect of shaping. Okay. So seeing has to do with the vision that we have of the world, our sense of where we are, what the world is like, Uh, how we are related to God, how we're related to other people. We might call this our worldview, uh, the way, the lens through which we see the world, the the, the paradigm through which we see the world. And then also there's this sort of, this sense that the world pulls on us. Uh, Our desires are pulled in particular directions. Things that seem that they are more worthy of our attention, they capture our imagination. And then thirdly, there is also this creative aspect of shaping where we take the world and make something of it. We, we build things, we make things, we make families, we make institutions, we make businesses, um, uh, we make art, we make music. So an illustration might be helpful to kind of unpack some of these levels. So I read to my children still, and, um, but when I, when I first started reading to them, uh, like when I was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a, a book by C.S. Lewis, Their imagination is engaged on multiple levels. So first, whenever they hear the story, they imagine the characters, right? They imagine the white witch chasing the children in her sleigh. They have to do that. When you hear a story, you can't help but see it in some sense. They see the white witch, even though they know she's not, quote unquote, real. 
So they have to project an image for the sake of the story. So they're using their imagination and it's a kind of scene. But then if we close the book and they try to go to sleep, what happens? Well, they find now that the image of the white witch continues to remain, even if they don't want it to be there. It impresses itself on their consciousness. So now we have the second layer of imagining, sensing, that we see images or we feel things that are not necessarily present, even if we don't want to think about them. When our imagination is taken captive, we, may, we might feel like we're still on the inside of the story and we might feel fear. Uh, and so for my kids, an image captures their imagination that they're not able to wish away by sheer force of will. So in the first case, they use their imagination. In the second case, their imagination uses them. Uh, an image or an impression or an idea or a feeling moves them, affects them, captures them. We feel things in our bodies. I had a, a couple I just went and officiated a wedding for, and they bought this trailer that they were pulling behind the truck on Christmas Eve last year. And the road was icy and the trailer came disconnected from the truck and flipped and pulled them into the ditch. And they were fine. They fixed the trailer uh, and everything was okay. But they said the next time we drove that road, as soon as we got to that place where the trailer came unhitched, our bodies tensed up. We felt it in our bodies, right? Now that's a case of your imagination using you, right? You are not actively projecting that, but you feel something in your body, right? Uh, maybe based on some traumatic experience you've had, maybe based on some sort of memory where now you're sensing, you're feeling things uh, that then move you in particular directions. And then finally, the third layer here, this layer of shaping um, is this thing that all of us do, but we see kids do maybe more than anyone else, where even though the images that they, that they had in the story are unpleasant, they continue to ask for the story. And when they play, they integrate the story into their, the mashup of all the stories that they put together, you know, and they might have, you know, the Ninja Turtles in there and Harry Potter in there and Disney in there. And, you know, all of these things get to get to go together in their imagination as they create scenarios, creative scenarios that sort of make sense of their place in the world. This is the third level shaping uh, where they take all of these elements and they place them together in a larger narrative where evil exists, but it can be overcome. Uh, so creative play makes a space where they can process the difficult emotions they encounter in the primary world. So um, in this scenario, all three kinds of imagining happen together, but one is moving from mind towards the world as I project, as I express uh, an image towards the world. The second one moves from the world to the mind as it impresses itself on me. And then the third one is the space where we put it together, right? What the world impresses on me and what I am projecting towards the world. And all of these things, as we do this together, we're using our imagination not to escape reality, but to grasp it more fully. What is possible? Uh, what is really possible for me? Because the imagination is the faculty uh, that explores possibility. So why does it matter? Um, let me go a little bit further, then I'll open it up for questions. Why does, this, why does the imagination matter? Well, whenever there is a gap in our knowledge um, or an insecurity, the imagination seeks to fill the gap. It investigates possibilities. Well, what if it's this? Well, what about this? 
So you're home alone and you hear a noise downstairs late at night. Where does your mind go? <laughs> well, if you're like me, a fully formed image of a burglar may enter your imagination. I'm even thinking like how I'm going to fight the burglar, what I'm going to grab, you know, like when I mean, all of those things. And, and you don't need to summon it. Summon it. It is this profound act of imagination trying to fill in the gap so that you can be rooted in reality more fully. Right? Or you're walking through the woods and you hear a noise in the bushes. What do you think? <laughs> well, some of that depends on how comfortable you are in the woods. When I was in Chicago, I was a big brother for the Cabrini Green Big Bro Big, Big Sis program. And Cabrini Green was at the time one of the most dangerous neighborhoods um, in the United States, uh, the Chicago projects. Uh, they've gentrified it now. It's now crazy compared to what it was when I was there. But um, I used to walk into Cabrini Green and I was, I was scared, right? But the kids, my, my, little brothers, my little brothers that were there, were not afraid, right? They knew that they were safe. They knew when to go out, when to, when to stay in. And so I was afraid in that space, but they were not afraid. But then we took them on a camping trip out into the woods in Michigan. And they were terrified the entire time. Um, they were terrified anytime the, the bushes rustled, they were sure that there was a wolf coming to get them. Um, they were totally out of their comfort zone and out of their element. And so these kids who were growing up in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the United States were, were terrified of lions and tigers and bears in where a place where I felt uh, relatively safe. So we use our imagination, but our imagination also uses us because all of us have this deeply felt sense of the way that the world works and how secure we are in it. And when we feel insecure, what happens is that our imagination becomes captive to cynicism, to fear, and to despair. This is the natural human trajectory. Cynicism, fear, and despair. So when cynicism captures the imagination, it tells you there is no one that you can trust. So try to see through everything so that no one can hurt you. Uh, fear. It's normal to be afraid, but when fear captures your imagination, uh, it keeps you from being able to love fully. So fear says there are so many threats, just seek comfort and safety and security. Despair is a failure of imagination, isn't it? It's the inability to see how things could change, the inability to envision how tomorrow could be better than today. Despair just says, this is just the way that things are, and it's always going to be that way. So don't get your hopes up. Just try to survive. And the heart of discipleship, why we worship with other believers, why we pray, why we read scripture, why we serve, is because we want our imagination to be shaped by, not by cynicism, fear, and despair, but by faith and by love and by hope. Our sense of who we are and where we are in the world. Because if you go on social media or if you watch the news, there are so many stories to fuel cynicism, fear, and despair. And we need a bigger and better story, one that is beautiful because it is good and good because it's true. So we need a discipled imagination to entrust ourselves to a God that we cannot see with our eyes. And yet we can see all that God has done. Right? We can see God's goodness and God's presence in creation. We can see God's goodness and love in the love that he's shown uh, in the life of our families. We can see what God has done for us most fundamentally in Jesus Christ. So that Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Right? That's a profound act of imagination. 
Love too requires a discipled imagination because to, to love, you need to be able to see a world that does not revolve around yourself. Um, but most importantly though, you need imagination to hope because hope asks the question, can tomorrow be better than today? Can things change? Can I change? And it asks you to imagine a future based on the promises that God has made. So not to necessarily project what the future is going to be, but to know that God will be present, that God has promised to be present and with you and for you. And so what I always want to say to people, you know, sometimes I have students who are a little bit resistant to this idea of imagination. And I just want to say, you know, you are already using your imagination, or maybe it's already using you. There are things, anxieties, and fears, and loves, and desires, and hopes, and maybe particular persons or dreams that have absolutely captured your imagination already. And these things are the filter through, uh, through which we experience the world. Early in ministry, somebody said to me, it's not enough to just try to change what people believe. You also have to address what they care about. Because the things that they care about, and what I would say, the things that capture our imagination are the real things that orient our lives. So to perhaps to borrow a line from Lewis, uh, the Lord finds our imaginings not too strong, but too weak. And if the imagination is like a muscle, we have to exercise it. We have to uh, have what we imagine be challenged and changed and transfigured by the Christian story, uh, reshaped according to the logic of the gospel. So uh, my favorite gloss for the imagination is found in Ephesians 1.18, where Paul prays about the eyes of your heart. So this puts together desire and, and, and vision. Right, what you see shaped by your desire, so that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So there has to be this work of grace that happens in us with which we can participate, so that the eyes of our heart are opened so that we can know the hope that he's called us to. And then at the end of the, the third chapter of Ephesians, he reminds us, but no matter what you imagine. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. So we always want to have our imaginations being reshaped by the story that God is telling to us in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, and in scripture. And so we have to do that work not by discounting the imagination, but by discipling the imagination, which means that it needs to find its home in the big story of Jesus Christ. So let me pause here and uh, see if there are any questions before we get to the, uh, the, the how. How do we disciple or how do we, how do we address the imagination? Anything? Um, let me stop sharing for a second so that I can see more faces. <laughs> Anything bubbling to the surface or percolating that, you, uh, that you'd like to ask before, before I go on? Hey there, this is Steve. Um, I think when you speak about imagination, what comes to mind is parables. Like, didn't Jesus in the book of Matthew 
speak a lot about parables, helping us imagine certain things as opposed to just giving, giving us the facts and figures. So is yeah. that kind of the same? That's really good. Yeah, that's that's a great point um, that I that I also like to make, and I will make in just a second. Uh, that when even I mean, think of not just the parables that Jesus used to engage his listeners' imagination, but the very way that the scriptures are given to us. A lot of times, what we want is bullet points. We want five hundred and one facts about God, uh, but instead, God tells us a story. Now, within that story, there's all sorts of other genres of literature, but all of them require us to engage our imagination. Um, so whether it's the metaphors that, uh, that scripture gives us, the analogies that Jesus makes, the kingdom of heaven is like this, right? Um, it's requiring, it's what Jesus is giving us is images and metaphors and parables to exercise our imagination so that we're able to think and see and, uh, and, and, and move in different ways. And I think that's what the Bible is trying to do too. It's trying to, um, stretch our paradigms, uh, beyond just kind of knowing all the facts, it's actually trying to emplace us in this big story and show us how God interacts with ordinary people uh, in all different situations throughout the course of history. And that that's maybe more important than us just having 501 facts about God. Yeah, great question. Anything else that comes up at the moment? Hi. Um, so I was just wondering, your work as a teacher, uh, what what are some of the main reasons why people seem resistant to imagining? Is it this notion that imagination is a negative concept with regard to the gospel or to uh, yeah. Bible learning? Or maybe it's just like a way that we have been trained in Sunday school to yeah. uh, look at? Yeah, I think a big part of it is, so a little bit earlier, I said the three things that imagination is not. So it's not false. It's not escapist. It's not childish. And I think those are why well, I always kind of start with that um, because those are three really common things that I get from students and from people uh, because people feel like, oh, it was, you know, you, this, the way we talk about, did I just imagine it, right? That seems like a kind of knowledge that is not as good. It's not as strong, you know, and, and Peter says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables, right? So this is not just something that we dreamed up or that we made up. And, and absolutely, that's absolutely the case. And so I think that a lot of the resistance to that is the way that we tend to use the word imagination in everyday life. Um, some of the uses of the word imagination, the, the fear is that if we talk about the imagination, then we're not building on a solid foundation of truth. Um, now, I care about truth as much as anyone. Uh, I think we have a responsibility to get reality right as best as we can. Uh, but the truth is, the truth is, is that uh, God gave us imaginations, and this is part of being human. And we should not try to disciple, be discipled or disciple people as if we were just brains on a stick, you know, that just needed to download the right information. Uh, because the reality is, is that we are moved and oriented and, and the way we see the world is shaped by all sorts of other things, not just facts um, about reality. And if our heart is not oriented towards reality in a particular way, we will only seek the facts that justify the reality that we want to believe. Uh, we have to have our hearts reoriented towards reality. And so that's why I say we, I, I like to start with the beautiful and then move to the good, and then finally root it all in the truth. And to say that Christian faith is be first beautiful, um, and especially I'll talk about this a lot when we talk about apologetics. Um, 
my goal with people, with my students, and also with, with, with non-believers is not first to show them that it's true. It's to show them that it's beautiful so that they would want it to be true. Because if a person doesn't care that it's true, doesn't care, why, why, would, I, why would this make any difference to, to me? Like I, like I say, our problem is not atheists, but apathists, people who don't care uh, whether or not there is a God. Uh, unless you show them that there, there's something beautiful about this story of the gospel, that you want them to say, well, I wish that was true, but there's no way that that's true. Uh, there's no reason to care about the arguments or the, or the facts. And so I think that's um, what I'm trying to do as well in my teaching is I'm, I'm trying to start out with this, uh, with the, the beauty of Christian, the beauty and the coherence of the Christian story and the generativity, the way it opens up all of these possibilities that are even beyond um, the, you know, beyond the limits of the grave, right? That the possibility that life could, could continue and that our loved ones are not lost to us and that God will, will make things right in some fundamental way that we can't even figure out. Uh, that's beautiful. Um, and then I go to the goodness, the way that that leads to a life that is good. Um, and then to the truth, which is what it's rooted on. Yeah. Any other questions? You can sort of, I can just keep doing this and then I can do the third point in a whole session. So are there, are there other things that? Uh... Um, yeah, this is true. And I have a question regarding um, well, your, I guess your definition of imagination. Uh, it, it is, does not equal truth. And if I hear you correctly, right? It and does so not, when, not yeah, necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah. So what precautions should we use when, uh, when we're interpreting and when we use our uh, imagination in interpreting scripture? Yeah. Um, I can see sometimes we spiritualize things and imagine things and uh, kind of trying to uh, uh, see things that are, are maybe not there. So is there any, any guidelines you would um, yeah. help us yeah, with? That's a great in, question. Um, so first of all, I'd just say that the use of the imagination in interpreting scripture is unavoidable as the use of the imagination and living life is unavoidable. Uh, and so if you try not to use your imagination, you will fail and you will just imagine something that is not, that doesn't take seriously, uh, both your situatedness as a person who lives at a time and a place in history, as well as the way that scripture is trying to engage you in your imagination. So that's the first point. As far as guidelines and guardrails uh, with interpretation of scripture, they're the same as, as when you think about exegesis. So you have um, scripture first itself, the uh, you know literary rules of interpretation to make sure that the meaning that we're getting out of scripture is not just, well, this is what it means to me, but this is actually, I'm trying to follow the clues that are left behind by the author. So genre of, of a particular text, a genre is a contract between the writer and the audience that it's meant to be read a certain way. So maybe you've, uh, some of you had the experience of somebody posting something online that was meant as satire and that person thinks that it's serious. You know, it's, it's a real news story. Uh, when they, what they've missed is the genre. They've missed the contract that's, that's made between them and the author. And so to be a, uh, a wise reader of scripture or a wise imaginer, a, a person who's sort of imagined following what the, the author is wanting us to do requires us to, to gain some sort of literary skill, at least to know the way that the author is intending for that to be taken. 
And then the next level then, of course, would be interpreting scripture by scripture. So interpreting individual passages in light of its place within the larger canon and story of scripture. So that whatever we say about a particular passage, it fits in this larger story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the big story of scripture that we're trying to place ourselves in. And so if we come up with an interpretation that doesn't fit in that story in which Jesus is fulfilling the promises of God to Israel, uh, you know, something that is out of sync with the rest of the story, uh, then we're going to go astray. And then the third level, of course, is the wider church. And, and what I mean by that is not just uh, your local church, though that's really important, uh, but also um, believers across time and space, right? Uh, so reading commentaries, reading um, interpretations from other believers in other parts of the world um, just has a really profound way of showing you the lenses that you are looking at the text through. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes that I use with my students. Um, and it's written by a Bible scholar and a missionary uh, to Indonesia. And it just has this wonderful way of, of when you hear how people in other parts of the world are receiving the scriptures and interpreting the scriptures, it shows you that a lot of the ways that you sort of naively interpret scripture is actually very much situated through cultural context. And so this is one of the reasons why um, the gift of translating the Bible into other languages and for other cultures is that we all be then begin to see uh, the cultural lenses through which we are reading the scriptures. Um, so that's another guardrail as well, is that there's a larger tradition and then in fact a great tradition of theological reflection on the text um, that keeps us from just kind of coming up with whatever, making the text mean whatever we want it to mean. Um, it is not an act of love to get a message from somebody and to mis misinterpret it willfully or just make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And in the same way, when we read the text of scripture so much more, an act of love uh, to the Lord who's given us the scriptures is to really do our best to read that in the way that the Lord wants us to, to read it and that the authors uh, that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit intended for the text to be read. So all of that is basic hermeneutics, you know, basic uh, interpretation of scripture. And so to apply that to the imagination means that we are now not, not just dealing with the truth that the text are the truth that the texts are giving to us, but also the, the ways that that text is trying to draw out our emotions, uh, the way it's trying to give us a particular picture of the sort of God that God is, a particular picture of the sort of people that we are called to be. Um, and that requires some level of, um, I guess what I would call improvisation, um, which again, improvisation is not just doing whatever you want to do, but listening so well to what's happened before so that what you do now is uh, is faithful to what's come before, but also is um, is fitting, is fitting to the time and place where you are. Did that answer the question? All right. I, I have to unmute myself. Yes, you did. Thank you. Um, how much time do we have here? About 10 minutes? Yeah, about uh, 15 minutes or so. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to go into this third point. Maybe I'll do that for the next one. So is there another question? Otherwise, I have sort of a closing story or a closing um, example uh, of that I can share. But is there another question before? Um, well, I, uh, I don't know if this is a question, but recently, just a couple weeks ago, I came across the... I think it's a TV show, The Chosen. I don't know if you've heard of it. 
So I've heard I just, of it. I haven't seen it. Okay. I just saw it on YouTube and started watching. And as you're speaking, it seems like the person who created that series is using his imagination as he's creating the show. Because in the show, um, the characters that are characters from the Bible, they say things, some of them are, you know, the exact words that we read in, in the Bible, but they also say things or do things that aren't discussed in the Bible. But yet, I find it helps me understand or maybe comprehend um, the heart of the person more because the, I may be, maybe because they're embellishing it with their imagination. Yeah. So I just, I guess it's just the point that as, as you're speaking, I would imagine that the person who created that series was applying his imagination yeah. um, onto that show. And I, I, I found it very intriguing and I've kept watching because when I finish watching um, a chapter of it or whatever it is it helps me sit there and think about wow you know jesus is really you know that loving or that merciful Mm. based on what i've seen on that show so i think it's along the lines of what you were saying yeah it's really interesting because um so there was a, a study that was done this is part of the research i'm doing right now is into the use of the imagination in prayer so again, when you pray, all of us use our imagination in some sense. Uh, maybe we don't necessarily imagine God to look a certain way, but to speak to a God that is not physically present is an act of imagination. And so I've been doing some research and there is a study that was done um, with people who are using, uh, there's an imaginative prayer technique called the Ignatian method, uh, composition of scene. And so in this method of prayer, uh, you listen to a Bible story from the Gospels and you're encouraged to place yourself in the story. So imagine that you are there with the woman at the well, right? Like what, you know, and, and then your imagination fills in the picture. So, so what is the, what is it, what does the air feel like? You know, it's, it's, it's asking you to actually use your imagination in filling in the details, which we naturally do. If we spend time really slowly, meditatively reading a story, your imagination, as it tries to grasp that story, is going to try to make as many connections as it can. and is going to imagine the woman to be looking a certain way. How far is Jesus sitting from the woman? You know, all of those things that when you actually make a show like The Chosen, you actually have to make decisions on. We sort of naturally make those decisions, don't we? But the study found that people who prayed in this particular way, who prayed with this sort of imaginatively engaged prayer, reported that their experience of uh, God's presence in everyday life was much more profound, much more robust, um, because they were sort of exercising their imagination as they listened to scriptural passages. And I don't know if that necessarily means that we should all pray that way, um, but it does show that we have this, this capacity for, the word is called absorption, um, this capacity to engage imaginatively with the biblical text, and that actually that could maybe shape the way that we experience the world, whether we feel like the world is full of meaning and full of connections and full of God's presence, or whether we don't, you know. And part of the reason why, when you're in church, it's such an imaginatively rich environment, right? Because you are surrounded by all of these brothers and sisters uh, who have this shared vision of reality with you, and you get to hear uh, Joey or I'm pre- preach a sermon, you know, that is, is reinforcing painting a picture of God. So it's this very thick context. And then when you leave that, if you don't have a practice of, of sharpening and, and, and exercising your imagination, it would make sense that, um, yeah, it would, your, your sense of grip would, would not feel as strong. 
Is there another one? I have one final thing to sort of share and then, um, but is there another question? Okay, so the last thing I'll share is just an analogy. Again, you have to use your imagination for this. Um, and this analogy comes from N.T. Wright. And he says, imagine that we found a lost play by Shakespeare. And, um, but it was incomplete. So we found this play and it was the most amazing play that he'd ever written. And we had act one and act two and act three and the first part of act four and act five, but it's missing this big chunk of material, but we love this play so much. It's so beautiful. It's so well done that we want to stage it. We want to put it on. He said, how would we go about doing that? How would we go about putting this, this play that is missing a part of it? Uh, and he says, the only way that we, we could conceivably do that would be to immerse ourselves so fully in the parts of the play that we do have so that when we go about improvising or, or filling in the details for the part that we don't have, it would, it would fit. It would be fitting and faithful to what's come before and what's coming after. And then Wright says, you know, this is exactly our situation as Christians. Uh, we are given this story, the story of God, uh, the story of, of Israel, the story of Jesus, the story of the church. And we have all of these earlier parts of the story. And then we have the very end of the story, too. Uh, we know how the story is going to end in some, in some sense, at least to be able to say uh, good wins or evil is overcome and the kingdoms of this, uh, of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Uh, but we're missing this one part of the play, and that's the part of the play that we're living in. And he says, for that story to have authority, to exert its authority on our lives, means that we would need to immerse ourselves so much in the parts of the stories that we do have, um, the earlier action, and the flow of the action leading up to where we are and what's coming so that what we did now, the way that we perform the story, uh, would be both faithful to what's come before, faithful to what's coming after, and also fitting to the context that we're living in. Because there's lots of things in our current situation that the Bible doesn't directly address. And so the only way for us to know how to live faithfully would be through an act of imaginative immersion in the story of scripture so that in the way we live our lives, in the way that we shape the world, in the way that we, we use our creativity, it's both faithful uh, to the story of God and Jesus, and it's also fitting uh, for the situation that we're in. And so this itself is, is one of the reasons why I think the imagination is so important, because I think all of us naturally do this. All of us naturally have to do this. Uh, we are trying to live in a world that is increasingly complex, um, in which there's all these different overlapping stories, and to be funded by this primary story that's told to us in Jesus Christ is the goal of Christian discipleship, to live that story out every day, to tell that story, um, and to do it in a way that is faithful uh, to what's come before and what's coming after, but is also fitting to the time and place where we're in. And to do that, it's not enough just to know the right answers. It's not enough just to know 501 facts about God. It actually requires the training of the imagination. And so, and then I guess in the next session, uh, which I'll record, um, that's what we want to focus on is how do we disciple our seeing? How do we disciple our sensing? And how do we disciple our, our shaping? Um, and what we're going to find out is that we disciple our seeing by the stories we immerse ourselves in. 
we disciple our sensing by the habits that we engage in and the practices that we engage in. And we disciple our shaping by um, really paying attention to, to what we make, what we're making every day and how we're using our imagination and creativity in, in those ways. So that's a little teaser uh, for next for the next session. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for um, even that teaser. You all have to come back and and and, and listen to everything that's going to be uh, unfolding. Appreciate you uh, to be able to to, to teach us and to help us think through honestly a an area I think that is often um, been lacking to develop, especially in 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 our faith as as believers. So. Um, I don't know if there's any following questions that people have. We have like five minutes, but I don't know if there's anything lingering in anyone's mind. They just want to get out and be able to, to, to ask. Is there any um, last questions from people that are engaging? Because we're not, the next two sessions, again, as, as um, Pastor Just, Justin mentioned, they will be uh, just um, asynchronistic. We'll have them as videos for you to engage in. And then until the fourth session where we will actually have another live session. But uh, until then, this is got five minutes of live interaction here for you. Yeah. Here, or anything you'd like me to definitely address, uh, something you're really interested in that I could um, make sure that I address in the in the next two. So I was just thinking, like maybe not so much a question, but more of kind of like an observation or a comment. Um, uh, having started going to church uh, like sometime in grade school, uh, I I do remember thinking I wish I had more pictures of what things look like back then. And I always appreciate when um, one of the pastors would get up on the pulpit and talk about history or um, I, I kind of enjoy languages. So I like learning what different words are in like Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or whatever. Um, but I, I do find that sometimes and understand that it's hard uh, to integrate that in messages or in classes. Um, but I, I feel like like pictographs aren't used a whole lot um, or maybe maybe some people just don't feel like it's it's possible to find an accurate representation uh, visually of what something looks like. But I feel like that's um, that that would have been something I think for me growing up that would have been really beneficial because uh, I feel like you know everyone learns differently. And not to say that I'm always a visual learner, but I remember like back in college having to like just memorize stuff like chemistry class and feel like it was difficult for me to. Um, envision the movement of electrons. Um, and that part of that, I think, made it very difficult for me to imagine like how the reaction played out um, kind of in real time. It was just very abstract for me. So I, I feel like sometimes when I think about the gospel, um, especially parts of the Old Testament, I feel like that that's kind of, it's like a similar feeling. It's not so much like I have to memorize all this to like understand the synthesis of how something is made later on, but I do, I do get this feeling of like, it's, it's hard for me to grasp it. Maybe partly because I, I'm not from that culture or I'm not mm. like, it's just so different from me um, that it's, it's, un, it's just hard for me to understand. I don't think I necessarily saw it so much as like a lack of imagination. I think for me, it was just, maybe I'm just not informed in a way where it's conducive to my learning style. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, just if you think about the history of the church and, um, you know, people couldn't read for, for a large part of at least uh, the history 
in the West. And then you have the Protestant Reformation, which coincided with the printing press and then the, the turn from the image to the word almost, you know, where icons and images were removed from churches, but there was this great push for, for literacy and uh, to be able to read. And, um, and then it also created this big inner life uh, as well. So rather than looking out at things you would sort of imagine within um, as you listen to somebody preach. And the best preachers, of course, are the ones who give you images, right? Who, who, who tell you the story and tell you the story in such a way that you can picture it in your mind and then you feel like you grasp it. Um, and in both cases, you're using the imagination, right? Whether you have an image of somebody else's kind of account or perception of it, or whether you have somebody narrating it to you and sort of expressing it verbally. Uh, but it forms the imagination in different ways. And studies have shown that the more of your senses that you can engage, the more you remember it. Um, and so it's, it's not enough just to have, you know, auditory, but if you're also encouraging people as, as they hear it, to imagine tasting, touching, smell, you know, like all of those things, imagination is not just about vision. It's not just about seeing, but also we sort of um, simulate our senses, uh, what it would be like to be in that place and what you would feel, which is why we a lot of times have this sort of autonomic response of fear, you know, where your body tenses up um, in, in response to particular situations because your senses are engaged in, in that moment. And so, yeah, I think that, yeah, my response to that is just to say the best preachers and the best teachers, I think, um, and the best writers too, are the ones who leave you with images that captivate your imagination so that they stick with you. Uh, so they haven't just given you a bunch of facts because facts need to be put together into a picture um, for them to, to have any meaning for us. Um, otherwise, you just memorize it and forget it, as most of my students do. Uh, <laughs> but um yeah, what, what we need is, is coherence and, and, and things put, being put together for us. Is Stephen raising his hand? From Stephen, that's right. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking some time to chat with us. Really appreciate kind of the, the thought and kind of processing through this. Um, definitely chewing on, particularly, I think, what you said about apologetics and how to make people see the beauty as opposed to the truth. I think that's a, yeah, I think something I'm, I'm chewing on a little bit. Um, had a question for you about, I recently had a conversation with a friend, a non-believing friend, uh, who talked about the idea of visualization and how, you know, when he's learning something new or trying something new, he really takes this approach of he needs to see himself being successful in it, right? And and kind of using his imagination, I think, for the language you're using. Um, and it was really interesting to me because I feel like it's not something I necessarily do or think about, um, but there's obviously, I feel I feel like some overlap between what you're saying, what he's saying. So I guess I'm, so my question would be, where do you see maybe some overlap with some of the secular ideas of visualization or like mastering the mind or some of those things? And where do you see maybe it us kind of overlapping, but where do you see maybe differences sure. in believers? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there are just different things. Um, we are made in God's image and live in God's world. And so people who have no Christian faith are able to make amazing discoveries of the way that the human body works, the way the human psyche works, the way the human mind works. Um, in psychotherapy, for example, um, or behavioral therapy, you have all sorts of visualization that happens. Uh, for example, unforgiveness studies 
a big part of people being able to forgive is being able to visualize themselves as forgiving the person, even if they can't actually do it, you know, in person, uh, to, to be able to get to the place where you can actually forgive somebody who has done great evil to you, uh, requires sort of this exercise of the imagination of, of forgiving them. And so there, I think, uh, in psychology, especially, um, and other places like that, there's a lot of truth that people are, are finding. And, um, and I think that's just part of the fe- a feature of the way that we've been created, not just as minds, but as kind of these embodied beings that can project possibilities. You know, I think the, the number one thing that sets the Christian faith apart um, from any other approach to the imagination, though, is going to be the sense of answerability versus autonomy. Um, so that I use my imagination in a way that is answerable to the God who gave it to me and is seeking to live faithfully in the world that he has, that he has made. Um, and so, um, the imagination is going to work in either case, but I'm either using it for the sense of, of being autonomous, being the one who is sort of a law unto myself, getting to be the one who dictates what I get to do and how I get to live. Um, or I'm using my imagination in a way that seeks to be faithful and to, to trace the trace the contours of of the way that God has made me and made the world. And so that, that's what I would say that that's the main difference um, in the way that we use it is that we proceed from a posture of faith um, and and receive it in dependence on God uh, and seek to live faithfully in response to God. Um, whereas just kind of a autonomous, which is what I take this the biblical writers to be objecting to. If we just use our imagination autonomously, um, then that leads to the Tower of Babel. <laughs> um, it leads to idolatry, right? It leads to injustice. It leads to all, all these sorts of things where the human imagination pointed in the wrong direction is capable of so much evil. Um, and pointed in the right direction is capable of so much beauty and, and goodness. Um, and so the the Holy Spirit is at work, I think, in the wider world and is pushing us in in, in and drawing us in the right directions. Uh, but I'd say that's, that's the main difference, I think, is the posture through which you use the imag- your imagination. If you're doing visualization and things like that, you know, is it ultimately about you and about your um, autonomy, or is it actually about your answerability, um, your, 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 your desire to be a faithful disciple who, who sees the world as, as scripture depicts it? right? As, as best you can, right? Um, and who, who experiences the world as full of the sort of meaning uh, that God has poured into the world. And not just a person who is, you know, the world is a blank canvas and I can write whatever I want on it. Um, no, we're, we're not that, we're not creators. Uh, we are discoverers. Um, we are creative, but we are sub, Tolkien says we are sub-creators, um, meaning we don't have primary creativity. Uh, we don't just get to dictate the way that the world is we are created beings and so we're answerable to a creator and so that that i think that would be the main thing um and so i would say there's lots of good and i mean i'm trying to learn as much as i can from psychology um and about about the imagination um but the way that i the way i'm pursuing it is, is in a posture of of faith and dependence and answer a desire to be answerable um in the way i use my imagination Great question. I think for the sake of time, we're going to wrap up uh, for this evening or for this morning or this session. It's not even the evening. That's where my mind is. Uh, (laughs) Thank you again, Justin. Uh, We're so glad we were able to have you. 
again, um, in the coming weeks, just to give you reference, we'll be um, we'll be giving you videos to watch uh, in the coming uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, on on those Sundays, and then we'll be we won't be getting together uh, on July fourth, but actually the Sunday after that on July eleventh, where um, we'll have a live uh, session with uh, Pastor Justin. So. Thank you guys for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys.